Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamara. I feel like we've been throwing a lot of different genres at you guys lately. There's been power pop, top 40, uh, funk and R&B, avant-garde, almost performance art. Well, this week we go in another direction. We're talking to Bill Janovitz, frontman for the excellent alternative rock band Buffalo Tom. So Buffalo Tom's been around for about 30 years. They started out in Boston. They came up with and were good buddies with the guys in Dinosaur Jr. In fact, their early albums sound a lot like Dinosaur Jr. And in fact, Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Jr. produced those albums. And so for a while there, they were sort of known as Dinosaur Jr. Jr. But they really came into their own with their 1992 album, Let Me Come Over. That, across the board, most people agree, is a bit of a masterpiece. Unfortunately, even though they were massively critically acclaimed and have a huge, devout following today, they never quite crossed over into the mainstream in the way that bands like Counting Crows or Wilco or those types of bands did. Uh, they even appeared on My So-Called Life, that TV show back in the 90s. So very uh, respected, but never quite you know, accepted massive, on a massive scale. Uh, they're still at it though. They're putting out a new album at the beginning of March called Quiet and Peace. These days, Bill is primarily a real estate agent in Boston, but he they still play shows periodically and will be out there promoting the new album and everything like that. So, But what's interesting is that on the side, Bill has always written books. So he wrote a book on Exile on Main Street. He uh, does some music critiquing for all music. You guys know how I feel about that. So this conversation is really interesting because the first half is the typical arc that we follow around here, sort of giving every band their episode of Behind the Music. But then the second half is just he and I talking about, and arguing in some ways, about music criticism, the state of it today, why Exile on Main Street gets so much love, baseball, Boston, Boston music writers. We kind of go in a completely different direction for the second half of the conversation. So I hope you enjoy this. And I have to say, this was a listener request. Tom Norberg, the best. I love Tom so much. And I'm really glad that we were finally able to do a show for him because he gives me a lot of requests. And a lot of them are either bands I have tried and not heard from or bands I just don't know that well. And I'm glad we were able to lock down Buffalo Tom for him. So thank you, Tom. And uh, here he is. Bill called me from his home in Boston. Well, I have a lot of questions for you, but one thing I want to know, first and foremost, I want to know when you fell in love with music. I want to know what sparked the thing in the very beginning. If there's one thing in my life that I've always, I don't know, not necessarily wanted to do or be part of, I think it's something when I realized that, you know, there were musicians and, and people made music, uh, uh, you know, it was something that it was like a, what do you want to do? You want to be a fireman? Do you want to be a, a sports hero? You know, you want to be a, a major league pitcher? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you want to go to the moon? I wanted to be a musician. I mean, it's always been a part of my life. And it's not like I grew up in a, in, with musical parents so much, although there was a little bit of that. My, my father was a singer when he was younger in a vocal quartet that they called the Fabulaires. <laughs> and they, <laughs> nice. they they were sort of almost getting ready to do something, you know. They recorded a demo and on an acetate uh, down in the Brill Building. And so th there was a little bit of that, but he was far more pragmatic, uh, and he right. never really played any instruments or anything. Um, so I'm the oldest of five. I didn't really have any brothers uh, or sisters that were pushing music. But eventually we all became a musical family. Uh, you know, I was... Mm -hmm. 
all my uh, brothers started to play guitar and and or different instruments. But I mean, when you know, you, I, just sorry the radio. To when you say that, are you out there like the Osmonds performing at county fairs, or is uh, it just that everyone, you know, got into music at some point in their own way? No, no, we were never really all simultaneous. I and mean, we, oh, okay. we did we did try to do an Osmond like Janovitz family Christmas thing where it was like three or four of my brother, uh, three of my brothers, I should say at this club in, in, in Cambridge here in Boston. And we did a bunch of Christmas songs. And actually the theme of the night was songs by sibling bands. So oh. we, we, we didn't do the Osmonds, but we did the Beach Boys. Sure, and the Kinks. The Everly Brothers and the Kinks yeah. and, yeah, that kind of stuff. So Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, music has always been there. It was like a radio and my, and my parents' records. And, you know, eventually you start to start stumble into records and record collecting and that sort of yeah. thing as well. Now I know the Stones are big for you. We'll talk about them a little bit more later. But was there was there were you in the backseat of a car when you know a particular John Denver song came on or something like that that really I just threw that name out there. It could be anyone, but that just hit your heart with such force that you thought I this is what I want to devote my life to. Yeah, I mean, all it's funny you mentioned John Denver. I, I mean, I I I still enjoyed John Denver. My 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 Me mom too. my mom had like we didn't have a they didn't have a stereo until like I was born in 66. So around 75, 76, they got a, a stereo system with an eight track and she got mm-hmm. some of the things that she liked. And, and, you know, she was always into Elvis. And so we had Aloha via satellite and mm-hmm. she got on a track and she got a John Denver and a Carpenters. And so all that stuff is very meaningful to me. It, it was that era where everything was on the radio. So, you know, yeah. you'd have Charlie Rich next to disco next to, Mm-hmm. You know, so it would be country and R and B and pop and you know, one hit wonders next to career artists. It was yeah. it's a great time to just listen to AM radio. But the first records uh, I got, the, I mean, amongst the first were the first albums I got were inherited from a neighbor of my my grandmother's, and um, it was out of our heads, the Rolling Stones and <laughs> Highway Highway sixty one revisited oh, so yeah and, and the beach oh. boys wild honey so it was kind oh. of a crash course and like yeah what's going on here at the top okay yeah. yeah no wonder okay that makes sense yeah i'm always curious you know what's that spark that especially for people who are close i'm 44 we're sort of closer to the same age you know if you're talking to someone in their 70s then it was a completely different era that turned them on but uh, people sort of around this age, I'm curious what sparked them in the first place to make them, you know, love it so much. And so, uh, you know, that's that's exactly what I would have imagined the lead singer of Buffalo Tom <laughs> getting turned on to, honestly. So that's yeah. cool. Okay, so I want to I want to ask you about something. Last week I was reading um, an article. Uh, you probably know about this. It was it was on AllMusic.com, which I want to ask you about that too because I think you contributed to that site. I have, and it yeah. was uh, Mark Marin an interview from like 2014 about interviewing musicians and whoever did the interview asked him, you know, what, what are some of the bands that you thought were going to be huge? And he lab- he says, you, he says, Buffalo Tom. Yeah. He's, you know, you, you probably know this. And he says, you know, when I heard that, let me come over album. I just was sure this was going to be huge and it wasn't. And I'm confused. And I thought, what, a, I, I don't know. I mean, is that, are you flattered by words like that? Or do you feel like, there's a narrative arc to the Buffalo Tom story, and that's sort of it. And that, does that rub you the wrong way? That's an interesting way of phrasing the question. I mean, it, it's 
I mean, look. I mean, I, I always look at this from from the very broad perspective. I'm not. I've, I've never. I've. I can't say I've never felt feelings of bitterness, but I'm not a bitter guy about anything. But, you know, I think of myself in in a number of ways. First is just you know a human being and a, a very fortunate one. And so you know, I grew up in a very supportive family. I've never really wanted for anything. You know, we grew up upper middle class, very comfortable. And then I look at myself as a fan and a fan of a lot of musicians that, especially as I got older, I, I you know, Big Star or Tom Waits or, you know, these sort of band, these, these groups that, you know, at a certain age, you don't really know how big certain artists are. And, you know, growing up in the 70s, they were the superstars. Uh, but then there were also people that were just playing pretty good sized clubs, like all the people that played the Troubadour over the years, even at their, even at, as they were sort of getting close to their biggest thing you know the troubadour in la is a place that we play so sometimes i look at it from that perspective and i really you know overall when i take the broad view i look back and I, even while we were sort of going through it i'm like of, co- of course we're one of those bands <laughs> that, <laughs> right. that everybody says was the underdog and should have been bigger and i'm glad to be considered by anybody that we should have been yeah. big you know, then then you pull back them or you pull in on them on the on the lens, and you know during those little iterations, there it was all about moving goalposts. So sure, it, it when I say that we really felt fortunate to put a, a, any record out and then to just headline a club in Boston and and could have ended there. I'm not being um, disingenuous. I, we were really it really was everything was like another sort of step and like wow. And then fast forward a little bit to to the to the point where we're going to Europe, and then all of a sudden Nirvana breaks through, and and then everybody that we had sort of grown up with and co- that were college radio DJs were now DJs at mm-hmm. commercial DJs or mm-hmm. at MTV or whatever it may be or at record companies. Everything changed, and it really did become um, right around. Let me come over. In fact, it became this thing of like, well you should be selling millions of records, you know, because there's nothing really in the middle in America. It's like yeah. you're either nobody or you're selling millions of records right. yeah. during that era, you know? Yeah. So now am I, am I going to say that there weren't times where I said, okay, this band that nobody's heard of just got signed to our, our label, a major label out of nowhere. And because they're signing everything that wears flannel shirts or whatever it else. Yeah. And, and now they have a huge hit and we don't have a huge hit and they're sort of secure for life and we're going to keep struggling. And, yeah, I mean, there were times where, like, why not us? The three of us together always sort of kept those sorts of perspectives in check where we we really, n- none of us were like the kind of people that would let our heads get too big or ever thought okay. that we were rock stars or anything like that. Right. I this That's a really interesting answer. I've never thought about this because uh, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people whose arc, that's their, that's the arc of their career. And, and it's what I find the most interesting, but you're savvy enough and a rock historian enough to know that on the one hand, to be the guy in that band is, <laughs> it kind of sucks. But as a, as a student of rock history, you think that's sort of, um, vaulted company. Like I, I know that that's a really interesting arc and I get to be the guy who carries that story around. Or is yeah. it too, is it not romantic like that? No, I, no, there is a little bit of that for sure, okay. and I and I'm and I'm I, I can succumb to nostalgia and romance and everything else as well. But I think the more important thing is the fact that a lot of those bands came and went. Um, mm. You know, 
that some of them were playing really big places. Some of them asked us to go out on tour with them and open mm. for them after we had been around for a while, and we did. And then if you see them at all now, you'll see them in sort of packaged 90s nostalgia tours or just mm-hmm. playing some some place. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm justifying it all, but I, what we have is this really dedicated crowd that mm-hmm. supports us pretty deeply. It's not... It's not, it's not necessarily broad, but yeah. I mean, we're playing some of the same venues we played near the peak of our career. So Good. it's, you know, it's if we had really stayed with it uh, during the 90s, I don't know if we would still be together. I don't know if we'd be yeah. bigger. It's not the kind of thing I think about too much. I mean, it's like I, I'm, I'm grateful for what we've had and, sure. and what we continue okay. to what we continue to have. Yeah. I guess at the end of the day, you can either be counting crows or you can be big star, and it's cooler to be big star, <laughs> you know. And, well, but hey, listen, wouldn't it have been great not, to have ended up being Wilco over all of them? You know what I mean? But it's yeah, just a, Wilco's a great example. I mean, but they really did work really hard. I mean, he they, he had been around obviously with Uncle Tupelo for about as long as sure. we had, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know suffered through the breakup of that band to form another one out, out of the ashes. There's two bands there, you know, Sun Vault. I mean, I, I guess, the, I guess the question you might, and I'm sure Jay Farrar has been asked this a million times. I don't really know the answer, but I mean, if there's somebody that would feel more embittered, I, I could imagine he gets asked that question quite a bit when Wilco went on to be this kind of big generational, you know, sort of band of, uh, of a lot of right. people, uh, a lot of people I know's favorite band, but they they worked really hard, and, and I think they sacrificed quite a bit. And frankly, you know, there's only what two original members of that band, so oh. mm-hmm. I'm sure they went through their their challenges. Right. Uh, going back to Mark Marin, I know he spent some time in Boston. Did you know him? No, I mean he and I have communicated a little bit in, in recent years. Uh, you should you know, be on his show. He's been really supportive and, and mentions us. Uh, a few times on the show, so Good. And, and I'm a fan of his. So I, I mean, I really like the conversations, and, and I and I yeah. like his co- comedy, and I've read his books, and blah blah blah. Good. Yeah. yeah. At, when I read him mention you that, and I thought, what a perfect guest. I mean, it just makes sense. This has to happen. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, speaking of maybe maybe this is a stretch in logic, but speaking of comedians, I think you you played the last John Stewart show as well, right? Yeah, we and played. And I think he um, requested you specifically, did he not? Yeah, John's been another comedian uh, supporter. He, um, uh, he, we played on two two of his shows. So the one he had on MTV, and and then uh-huh. the syndicated one. And the syndicated one, he 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 requested that we be the the last uh, musical act on his show. Well, you know, the last uh, on his last show, we were the only musical act on his on his last show. And Letterman actually was there as well. So that was a real honor, and uh, you know we had gotten to know him over the years. Um, uh, you know, I went to go see him when he was up in Bo- when he would come and play in Boston or perform in mm-hmm. Boston, and, um, and I haven't seen him in a long time. I haven't really seen him. I, I've only seen him once since he actually started the Daily Show and and and, and then lo- and then ended it. But uh, I was a huge. I wouldn't miss a Daily Show. I would tape it yeah. and 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 watch them. So he he actually went out of his way to mention us in a quite a. a triumvirate of 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 heroes of his where really? he, had, he had tom waits on the show and then the next night he came he opened up uh the show with this story about how he had you know listen i have he said something like listen i have three of my favorite artists are bruce springsteen uh buffalo tom and tom waits and here's tom waits one of my heroes 
And this, you know, this, he goes into the bathroom and this tile from the ceiling falls on Tom Waits' head. <laughs> but it was this, it was really a me- another meaningful moment for me because yeah. um, to be mentioned in that company, I mean, Tom, Tom Waits to me is, is one of my, you know, top three or four artists okay. of all time. So uh, to have uh, John mention us in the same breath as, as, as him and Springsteen was yeah. quite, quite, quite breathtaking, especially at that point in my life where I was, music was pretty back in the sure. background at that point, you know? Okay. Uh, I was watching a clip today of you performing, you guys performing on Conan very early on. And I'm thinking, well, Conan, he's Boston too. I mean, yeah. he's Harvard anyway. So yeah, no, he just went to, he grew connection. up, he, yeah, he grew up in, Bro- he grew up in Brookline. Yeah. Near, yeah. Right outside of Boston. Did you know him too? Are you just like, a, are you just like a groupie for comedians or? No, you know, in just, fact, I think, uh, it's funny. There are a lot of comedians that like, you know, David Cross and Janine Garofalo and, you know, Wesley Stace, uh, John Wesley Harding has that cabinet of wonders that he takes around the country. Mm-hmm. And he's just one musician, but who's the one who's probably done it the best of, of putting all these disciplines together of, you know, comedy uh, with Eugene Merman and other comedians and, and authors and musicians, because we're, we're all mutual fans of each other. And there's a lot yeah. of there's always been a lot of crossover between comedy and music. Just some interesting connective tissue there that I'm starting to piece together. And I wondered what the story was. Yeah, um, I, I, I didn't know Conan in Boston. He's, um, I think he, well, he's probably around the same age. Um, but uh, we never really, I, as far as I know, we never crossed paths, and we didn't really know who he. I don't think anybody knew who he was when he got the show, right? Right. Because uh, he was he was a writer, but um, his booker, um, uh, Jim Pitt, I, I think he's a Bostonian as well, and mm. he only just recently left Conan to go work at Kimmel. Um, but another great guy, and I think a Bostonian. Okay. Wow, fascinating. So let me ask you. Um, where, where are you? Where are you based, by the way? I'm in Denver. I'm oh, in Denver. Okay. I grew up in Salt Lake City. In fact, I I was late to the Buffalo Tom party because I don't know if this will even make sense to you, but growing up in Utah, you can imagine grew up Mormon, and you've seen those Mormon missionaries out there on their bikes, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah, uh, the white shirts and ties and all that kind of stuff. And we do that for two two years. And one of the rules while you're doing that is you can't listen to popular music. Mm. And I was on my mission from 92 to 94, Ah. which would have been, you know, the height of Buffalo Tom. And so you were big or, you know, getting big or rising or whatever during a time when I was not paying that much attention to popular music. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't know about that aspect of mission of the missionary. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys, they can't date. They can't go to movies. They can't watch TV. They can't listen to music. Wow. You're not even really supposed to like read the paper or nowadays get on the internet or anything like that. You're just hundred percent focused. Yeah. Intense. I know it was intense. And me being the music guy that I am, it was really difficult to go oh, those quite two a, years, but that's a, quite a sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I just mentioned that because, uh, yeah, I was, uh, you know, during the time when I would have been paying most attention to Buffalo Tom, I was out not paying attention to popular music. Oh, well, yeah, no no reason to explain to me. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, now, I am curious. You had mentioned a minute ago about other bands playing like 90s nostalgia tours and stuff like that. Do you, I mean, do you get invited to play that kind of stuff? Not hardcore offers. I mean, we, somebody, like, I, there's there's some bands that do cruises and stuff, and we've, we've, mm. We've they've asked us for our availability, and then you know you don't get a formal offer necessarily. We've never turned anything down, um, but we haven't really been 
given a hardcore, uh, you know, a, a concrete offer on, on something okay. like that. As far oh. as I know, I mean, it's not really of interest. I mean, you know, to some extent, some of the shows we play are with bands of our era. You know, like we opened up for Dinosaur Junior last yeah. Thanksgiving uh, last year, and so you know, you could look at it like that. But we, both of us, in that case, uh, continue to put out new music. So I don't necessarily think it's time for nostalgia for us yes oh, yet but I, I think a big i think a big draw for a lot of our audience is you know for lack of a better word it's it's playing the music that they love from that from sure. from their peak listenership right. and you know you can call it you can call it nostalgia or you can just call it that's you know what that's what that's when right. they were paying attention the most i don't know yeah because I mean, that's I, I'm thinking a, a band like Buffalo Tom that has, as you mentioned, the devout cult following. I guess you could say. Does it? I mean, that following is it? Is it big enough to sustain regular touring? Do you go out on tours once a year? Is it more sporadic than that? No, no, we don't really tour per se. I mean, we do like you know, like we've got a new record coming out um, in March, and oh, cool. Yeah, so we just really actually we're releasing a song on stereo gum. did a pledge music campaign so it's a crowdfunding thing and so the record finally got made and it's finally coming out uh in march so we've we're going to announce a a string of shows tomorrow and they'll include by the time this comes out um it'll already be out there so we're going to be playing you know boston and new york and la san francisco seattle and we'll probably do a midwest portion at some point chicago and and Minneapolis is usually where we kind of at least hit. And then at some point we kind of go down and do Philly or DC or both that kind of thing. And we always okay. go over to Europe and do the UK and uh, the Benelux countries. And then in, in a good year, um, if we've really got some time, or maybe the year after, we'll go down and do Australia stuff like that. But it's usually not for more than ten days at a time because hmm. we've we've all got. Um, varying degrees of, of commitments for day jobs. I mean, mm-hmm. now our kids are mostly grown up a little bit, so it's not as much of an issue as when we had little kids. But that's kind of why we took most of the 2000s, not off, but kind of kept it quiet and didn't do, mm-hmm. didn't do big tours. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I completely answered your question, but we don't really do big, like, get in the okay. van or get on the bus and do a six-week right. six tour at a time anymore. Okay. 
which I'm not, I don't miss, you know. <laughs> really? See, now that's something that I find really interesting because I, I was listening to a lot of older interviews with you and you, you speak very soberly about almost the decision not to walk away from being a rock star, but to prioritize it um, second to family and starting a family and paying the bills and maintaining some normality in you and your family's life. That's obviously where wisdom would put a mature person after the fact. But while it's happening and, you know, it's the late 90s and you're on Buffalo Tom's like sixth or seventh album and it's not still not quite getting over the hump like you want it to, to like worldwide mass acceptance, you know, or big hits or whatever. At that time, is that a harder decision to make to walk away and like, well, I... I can't do this anymore. It's not practical and I'm not paying the bills. I need to go into real estate and get some semblance of security for my family. Yeah, well, I mean, this, the decision was sort of handed to us in a lot of ways. I mean, we could have fought it. I mean, a couple of things. We were, we were actually making really good money. It, oh, wasn't good. Like, it wasn't like we were rich. Like I said, you know, in America, we did find some middle ground and there were bands like us. And Wilco was probably around the same size at, at that time. Uh, when we went around, right around the time that we broke up, there were bands like the Goo Goo Dolls who had really struggled most of their career and then finally broke through. And that was one of our last tours was actually opening up for them. And now we had known those guys since the club days way back and almost probably the late 80s. We had probably met them or so. So, you know, it was a weird time. So, you know, we were managing to make a really f fine living. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we we're getting rich. But you know, we bought houses and stuff, and oh, you know, if we had if we had kept on the road, uh, and kept trying to get record deals and making records and going on the road, that that's what we would have done. But you know, if if we had been bigger, if we had a hit record, then it wouldn't have been a question. We would have just taken the time we needed here mm -hmm. and there, and we would have kept doing it. I think. But mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of things conspired, like. We had we had been on this label, Beggar's Banquet, out of the UK since our pretty much our second record, and they had always had these licensing deals. I won't get too much in the weeds on this, but you know they had, mm -hmm. they would license our records out to to, to um, labels in the states, and at some point that early on around Let Me Come Over, it switched over to major labels. Mm -hmm. But by the time uh, of our last record in the 90s, which was Smitten. Without a tooth, you've given me the shaft. My friend's car's breaking down, and I've got no ride home. And I'm left out of apes in the evergreens, the great bees and jasmine tea comforts you without me. For it all, your voice is shaky on the telephone call. Roger, little pinto in the rain. You stall out with no one to give you a jump. Just took your cables to me, and then you'll see that I can start you up. 
We had signed directly to Polydor, which was under that whole Universal's thing, and then and Universal merged with Seagram's, and in the process, they dropped like 200 acts, and yeah, <clears> you know we, yeah, we sort of saw that coming, and we had the opportunity to hold the record, but we decided it was better. We had worked really, really hard on that record. It took us mm-hmm. about two years to kind of get it all together and get a record deal, and you know I think we could have signed a Beggar's Banquet, and in hindsight, that probably would have been you know to re-up that contract if they if we had had the choice i th- I don't know if they wanted us i think they mm-hmm. did that probably would have been the wiser thing but we felt like yeah you know the time is right if you know let's go for it let's sign to a major label in the states and see if we can kind of make something happen that way uh but you know the music industry was changing a lot of the stuff that was on all the radio stations were consolidating it was real corporate and it was really aggressive sort of New metal and Limp Bizkit and that kind of stuff was Creed was ruling the airwaves and it was real lowest common denominator stuff. So I think the writing was on the wall and the third prong of it was we were kind of sick of each other and we really had put in a lot of work and spent ninety percent of our of our time of our twenties together and it was time to sort of take a break and we were having kids so yeah it was like you know let's let's just take, give it a break. Luckily we had some money. To buffer us for a couple of years there, Good. Um, to do other things, and you know, I, I wanted to keep it going. I, I mean, I tried to form a side, a side band and get a record deal, but you know, it, it was more it was more indie stuff. And yeah. around that time, yeah, I kind of said, well, I should at least have a fallback plan here, which was always in the back of my mind as a okay. eminently bourgeois sort of pragmatic <laughs> kid, you know. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So hence, hence real estate. Huh. So you've, uh, I mean, it sounds like you went in pretty clear-eyed from the beginning then, maybe. I mean, everyone, I think, my so my feeling, the, the angle I'm coming from is that people, when they are young, they want to grow up to be rock stars and they want to, they want to express themselves creatively and they want to have millions of people love how they're expressing themselves and all that kind of stuff. And it's sort of rock star or bust. But it sounds like all along you kind of understood that this could be tenuous not to get too excited. Let's kind of take it as it comes and deal with, you know, the challenges as they come along. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. So, I, I mean, and I think the th- I think the three of us were were all, you know, we all come from really stable, similar backgrounds, you know. So, I think to a, maybe to a, well, almost definitely to a fault, we were pragmatic. I mean, you know, we dabbled in in, in that stuff and we were we were privy to it but none of us were ever comfortable with being treated like that like mm. having limos sent for us and sure. and stylists come and take us for for outfits for a video it was just all surreal at any moment and now were there moments where 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 we kind of started to feel like we were uh, getting seduced by it or letting ourselves be seduced by it i think so but like I said, having three of us, it's, it's like having your three brothers or two other brothers mm-hmm. around all the time, just not letting your head get too big. And like I said, to a fault, Mike, you know, the, the, the to a fault part might come where, where we were like, well, look, you know, we kind of had a good business sense, but maybe we were too smart for our own good because there are mm-hmm. things like, well, you know, we could take this bigger money over here, mm-hmm. uh, this bigger advance, but they're going to have bigger expectations of us. So let's kind of keep things 
in perspective here. And I think ultimately that was certainly wise. But I think we we made certain choices like that that maybe you know you always look back and go well maybe that maybe that we could have chosen. I don't think it would have been life changing in any way. But no, no, we 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 always kept that little sort of next goalpost pretty modestly ten yards down the field and not okay. not, not we never never went for a, a hail mary really. Okay. okay. I mean the clo- the closest we did was signing to Polydor and that ter- that proved to be not a disaster but sort of the. Yeah. the last breath of the 90s for us. Okay. All right. I want to talk about particular musical moments in your career. Um, you brought it up recently. I know it can potentially be a little bit of a touchy subject, but of course, everyone wants to compare your first two albums to Dinosaur Jr. just such an influence on you that that was sort of what you were aspiring to be did he was he so involved in those early stages of your career that it's his fingerprint that made you sound the way that it did what was really the sort of dynamic of that relationship is that were you sounding like was that who you were and you were just so heavily influenced by dinosaur jr that that's how it came I, out i think it's a little bit of everything i mean i, I you know like i i we we knew we all went to school together, you know, up at UMass Amherst, oh, and okay. and yeah, and Jay Jay's from the town of Amherst, and he went to school there. So, I knew Jay before Buffalo Tom even started. Uh, I was playing in, in in like sort of the remnants of my high school band, and 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 he was just starting Dinosaur uh, at that point before the junior with Lou and Murph out of um, out of the hard, uh, they they were coming out of the hardcore scene, and you know Jay was really into um, all kinds of stuff, and he was really quiet back then he's he's still very quiet but he's 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 come a long way and he was a really enigmatic guy and i didn't love love the first record i i mm-hmm. I, I liked it uh but it it, it it was more the second record of theirs you're living all over me which i just felt like i can't you know it doesn't it doesn't even matter that i know these guys this is like this is a record that i would love because mm-hmm. i already loved a lot of other things on sst like who's could do was a huge band for me i mean mm-hmm. they, they were like Who's could do in the replacements were the two bands that made us really want to form Buffalo Tom. But then here was, here was this band that was on the same, that was eventually on the same label. Um, They started at Homestead, which was another label that put out all these great records that we loved. And they were really kind of cool and loud. And, you know, we were, we were seeing them. They weren't playing up there a lot, frankly, because there weren't a lot of places to play up at UMass during those Mm -hmm. days. But whenever they played, just like any other band, we'd go see them. And it's kind of how Chris and Tom 
and I decided to form a band was like going to see not Dinosaur Jr. alone, but Black Flag or the Gun Club or you know we were we were friends because we were all in we were all in like this certain friend group, and we decided to form this band because we all really liked each other and liked each other's record collections and tastes, and we were mm-hmm. all to see each other at the same shows. You know, mm-hmm. I mean the Pixies played up there to maybe fifty people, and Chris and Tom were among them with me, and so it was that kind of mutual mutual yeah. fandom. And I really liked their bands. Like each of those guys were in bands. Chris was in a really fun party band, and I would sit in with them. And then uh, Tom was in this band with his cousin, and they were writing their own songs. I mean, his cousin was writing these amazing songs. So I really kind of looked up to Chris and Tom as well. They were both a little bit ahead of me a year and, and two years, respectively. Mm-hmm. So seeing all that, we said, let's, you know, let's just jam in a basement together. We had, we had these houses out in Northampton, the, the, the abutting town to where Smith College is. And we had these basements filled with musical equipment of all these guys that were in, you know, bands and houses and PAs. And so there were parties. And so we, we kind of formed that way. Um, and Jay was, um, was instrumental um, in like, you know, here's this real, here's this real immediate example. So by the time Buffalo Tom started, I think Bug was almost probably on its way coming out mm-hmm. their third album. So mm-hmm. I was a huge fan, as was the other two guys, as were the other two guys. So when it came time for us, to, and, and so, okay, so yeah, I mean, that's where some of that sound certainly comes from. It's like a, a power trio, Chris mm-hmm. playing his bass like a guitar because he was a guitar player. He had never played right. the bass before. Okay. And, and Tom had never played the drums before. You know, we were really intrigued with how Jay got those sounds on our record because we were fans of not only Who's Could Do in their replacements, but of course old stuff like Neil Young and and, mm-hmm. and Sabbath to some extent and mm-hmm. and Zeppelin or whatever, like these and and Jimi Hendrix and these things that, that Jay remind you know and the dinosaur sort of reminded us of, uh, as well as the newer stuff. So we were really intrigued by how he was able to achieve this really primitive but like new sound on mm-hmm. record. Um, mm-hmm. so when it came time to make a record we we sent around demos that we had done with, without him to labels, and um, one of them was, of course, SST, and another one was a Dutch label. So we ended up signing with this Dutch label first, and we licensed our record out to SST, and part of that was, I'm sure, Jay putting in the good word for us with Greg Ginn. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how much Jay spoke up for us, but as soon as we got Jay into the studio, which we we sort of did on a second or third round of recording dates up at Fort Apache in Boston, uh, by that time, it was like Jay going, yeah, here's how I do it. You know, here's a big mm-hmm. ass Marshall and don't don't be afraid to turn it up. And, <laughs> right. and here you're, you're instead of using a Strat with a JC120, think about going back to these old types of instruments that I used to use, like a Les Paul and a tube amp, yeah. you know. So that's yeah. the kind of stuff I grew up with. And it was just coming back to that and jay just going jay didn't give a fuck about uh, you know pro- how, how things were supposed to be done in a studio and and jay brought us and well we were already sort of going up to this fort apache studio which was run basically the inmates were running the asylum there as well it wasn't like engineers these were all musicians in a warehouse <laughs> figuring right. it out as they went so right. you know paul coldery and sean slade and tim o'hare these great musician engineers who yeah. weren't really engineers you know and right. nobody really cared if you were overloading mics and overloading tape and you know just getting sure. drunk and you know it's just it was that kind of stuff it was yeah. so jay was part of that and and i think everybody uh just one more thing about jay i think everybody 
Jay is like Jay. Jay, especially at that point, had this chance the gardener sort of being there vibe about him. Like the less he said, the more people were <laughs> were intrigued, you know, or intimidated. I could totally see that. Yeah. 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 So, and as he's gotten older, he's almost grown into that sort of Zen master icon, uh -huh. you know, of this Yoda-like guy. And uh, right. <laughs> right. I, I think that's that's having him there was was part was part of that fun. Okay. So then, uh, you know, most people, I don't, I don't know if you agree or care one way or the other. Of course, most people kind of view Let Me Come Over as the high watermark for the Buffalo Tom sound. such a marked difference you sort of um, I don't know you you know you go from being dinosaur junior to being almost I don't know the black crows or whatever you know that sort of alt country that's going on at the time was this a conscious decision to change up the sound were you maturing were you reflecting what you were into at the time what went into you know making this sort of you know I I, had, I don't want to call it a masterpiece and then have everyone have you worry that that means you only have one and everything else doesn't measure up. That's not what I mean, but it's the, it, most people consider it the gem in the Buffalo Tom cat catalog. What happened yeah. that made that happen? You know? Yeah, no, I think it was more, more than a conscious uh, decision to change the sound. It was because it, it really wasn't that it was more of a growth thing. I mean, okay. I think, you know, those first two records were us feeling our way around trying to figure out songwriting, really trying to learn our instruments. I mean, I, I had really plateaued as a guitar player from, you know, I, I had been playing since I was like 12 or 13, but, and I was only maybe, what, 20 when I was making these Buffalo Tom mm -hmm. records. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're still just figuring it out. I, I had only started writing songs when I was, you know, 17 or so. So Chris and Tom had never picked up those instruments, really. So that's what's going on with those first two records. And, they, and the first two records were almost made uh, almost at the same time, in a very short period of time. But then we went out on the road uh, for a long period of time on those two records. Um, you know, so those first two, three years were a real blur of activity. Right. And now we had time, a little, bit, a little bit more time, still not a whole lot of time, but a little bit more time to do the things that we were already doing, which was, you know, layering an acoustic and layering in different sounds, um, you know, maybe a little bit putting in more piano. And, but it really was letting our songwriting flower into something that was us i mean i think mm -hmm. big i think bird brain i think the first record is more of what i consider i think there's more songs that i consider consistent with our personality than than bird brain which was a bit more of us feeling around for into, into some of the darker shadows 
but there's still a lot of good songs on there. Don't get me wrong. Right. I just right. there's just some songs that are a little bit probably we're trying to be a little bit more edgy than we really were. Mm. So by the time of, of that third record, I think it was really us like going, wow, you know, we love these classic rock sounds, you know, and yeah. let's not be afraid to let them show. So we're with Paul Coldery and Sean Slade for the first time together. And they were just had just started for they they had been partners in a band and stuff, but, but they had, they were just starting to do more records together. And they had you know I think if we had really tried to if we were really consciously trying to switch up the sound, we wouldn't have kept going back to Forty Apache with those right. guys. But um, we really wanted to kind of let our I, I don't think we had a discussion, so it's hard to for me to kind of think back on this. But we were just more comfortable with letting our our influences show and you know frankly part of this was just like getting it's as simple as getting a capo for example and putting a capo up and letting those chords jangle away up there and then layering an acoustic and maybe letting the acoustic be now we're getting into the mixing talk so now we have a guy like ron saint germain who is a big powerhouse mixer come in and further sort of uh um further that direction you know like move the acoustics and move the vocals up front a little bit more so i think you know it's it's a number of these things but as far as the songwriting goes i think we were i you know in particularly i think i was it was really primarily me at that point chris was starting to write a bit more but it was really me just like going okay this works this is what i like to play this is what i like to sing on stage and and here's what's going on in my life and Mm -hmm. here's how i can get rid of some of this fluffy stuff lyrics that's more just almost meaningless stream of consciousness stuff. And here's how I can hone this into a song. That that kind of stuff is what I right. think all started to fall into place. Was were you satisfied with the reception of Let Me Come Over? Because my 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 uh, sense has always been that Red, Big Red Letter Day was almost more the like swing for the fences album. Maybe yeah, I have bit. that wrong. A little bit. So, so yeah, I mean, like during during um, during the recording, the final overdubs of "Let Me Come Over," Nirvana were, and I don't mean to just keep coming out to Nirvana, but they were really important to the changing of the overall commercial atmosphere. And there, and I don't, I don't think it can be overstated. So, Tom, who was the drummer, wasn't really, you know, he he plays his drums and he's pretty much done. So, mm-hmm. he went out to go see them play. I think it was Smashing Pumpkins or something were on the bill as well in Boston. And I remember him coming back and going, you know, I, we already we all knew who they were um, already, but Nevermind was just about to come out. And he was like, it was really an amazing show. And, um, you know, there was a sense of something big already happening. And Tom is the one of us who's least prone to exaggeration. Yeah. Um, so I, I could tell, you know, there was sort of a sea change happening and, 
And, you know, I just remember, for example, just seeing friends of ours, like not only Dinosaur Jr., but, um, you know, uh, whatever, all these, I mean, Husker Du and Replacements and REM had already signed to major labels before we even really got going. So there was a bit of that headwind going already, uh, or I should say a tailwind pushing, pushing forward. So there was a sense of that. Now, we went out on, on, on tour on Let Me Come Over, and I remember going to Europe first, probably, uh, and this smart-ass Dutch guy who we had already been working with, a publicist, saying, what happened? I, uh-huh. I, I, he goes, I have the new record. What happened? And I said, what do you mean what happened? He goes, all of a sudden you decided to make a good record. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he goes, I really, really like this record. And there's uh-huh. something about the Dutch and the Germans, even more so, who are very blunt, right? Uh, but then we came to America, and we started out on the East Coast. And once we got outside of Boston and New York, we started going down the coast into Virginia. And we were playing to almost nobody, you know, pretty mm-hmm. pretty empty rooms. Uh, but at some point, it really started to change. And we started to get back out to the coastal cities or the bigger cities in the Midwest. And we really started to feel this is getting airplay. People are this is This record is getting into the right hands. And it took a while. It took a little mm. while. And it didn't break through in any big way. Mm. Uh, but we got the sense that people were really appreciating this record um, as something different. And somewhere during that touring, we, we scrapped a bunch of Southern dates because we got offered a tour with My Bloody Valentine, whose record mm. Loveless was breaking pretty big. Not, not like commercially, but... Right. Uh, I guess commercially, but not mainstream, but it was like they were selling out pretty big rooms. So that was a really great tour. Yes. And we got this word that WNEW in New York was starting to play Taillights Fade quite a bit more, uh, which was like the second single, I think. Um, I don't think we led with that. You know, to not get too much in the weeds, and you can stop me if I am, but we had this two-tier system with Beggar's Banquet where they had a licensing deal with RCA, BMG at that point. Uh, so it was whether or not the farm team was going to sur- like, mm. if, if the major leagues were going to take over now. And right. I, one of those decisions I remember was that, well, you know, you guys really toured hard on this record. If you really don't, you're not going to go back out there. Why don't we just bring it back home and start making the next record. Hmm. And so to your point about swinging for the fences, you know, I don't know if it was so much like going out to LA, uh, you know, for big red letter day was about that. Cause you know, we chose these guys that had uh, the Rob brothers who um, made 
It's a shame about Ray for the Lemonheads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what we liked about it, it, was, it wasn't a flavor of the month sounding record. It sounded really classic. So it wasn't like we all of a sudden decided to change, you know, I think the commercially viable swinging for the fences thing would have been like, all right, let's, we got to make a, a record like Nirvana, you know? Right, right. Which was, which was not us. Instead, we went more in that direction of like slicker and acoustic yeah. and not big rock. It was kind of more song songs you know and Mm -hmm. and you know we can get into that record if you want but i mean that's that's kind of how it how it went down only in only in hindsight you know as as the years have gone by has has the appreciation for let me come over really grown oh really Uh, okay yeah and i'm not saying recent years i'm just saying you know it was fairly fairly soon on so but like those next three records uh let me come let me come over big red letter day and sleepy eyed are all considered I think by the hardcore fans as, you know, our peak. If you're lucky, you get you get a, a golden period like that. You know? Right. Yep. I would agree. Okay. Okay. Um, now I have to ask you about my so-called life. Um, I uh, I haven't seen the show, but I know you were on it, and that's kind of a big moment for anyone to be on television. Do you remember anything particular about? Uh, is there anything interesting about the story of how you how you got on that show, and you know any kind of expectations for sales skyrocketing afterwards or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of all of that. Um, you know, um, you, at that point, it was really about choosing your spots. Um, you know, so I've got, you know, I've got another story that 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 is sort of the flip side of that. But for for that story, we had heard that there were fans of ours at the show. Um, it was just starting, but mm-hmm. my wife was, you know, while we were on the road, my wife was actually watching that show, and it was a critically acclaimed show. She had probably seen it like an entertainment weekly or something, something right. to watch. Uh-huh. And it sounded up her alley and she loved it. So we got offered to have, I think just first, if they could use our music and, you know, we were all for that. And then they asked us if we wanted to, if we would appear into it, that they in, appear in the show that they were writing us into the show. Uh, and we got the script and it was like, Buffalo Tom was like every other word. <laughs> they, nice. like, they kept yeah. using us and they, they, they wrote, you know, the, the kids were going down to see us play and, you know, it wasn't like Melrose Place, which was kind of a cheesy show. It was a great show. It was just a yeah. great show. Um, yeah. So we agreed to it without, I don't think, much hesitation. And um, we got to you know, to be on the set because we were in the show as ourselves. <laughs> and, uh-huh. uh, so, you know, like any production, there's a lot of waiting around. And we were we had a trailer. And um, 
the kids were not prima donnas and they were the opposite. They were like, nobody kept to their own trailer. They all kept, they all came into our trailer and we're just hanging out. And they cool. were all like oh, 15 years old, you know, like Claire Danes was right. 15 and Jared Leto, he just wanted to talk about what's, what's, what it was like being in a band. Cause he was forming a, a band already with his brother who was also there. Okay. Um, and th- th- that's still their band. And yeah, uh, they were just really cool kids. And Claire Danes was so preternaturally smart and bright and charming and like a little adult but like fun and like sitting cross-legged on the floor and just being silly and it was it was just a really great experience and then yeah it really had this effect of probably elongating our career you know it was like it it i don't know if it resulted in a ton of record sales but um but it certainly upped our profile and um and you know we were on we were on the soundtrack, and the most important thing was we went from having a predominantly young male, frustrated twenty-something-year-old crowd to or thirty-something-year-old <laughs> crowd to having like a bunch of new twenty-something-year-old right. young women there. It was just uh-huh. fanta- it was fantastic. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, what was the other story? You were just saying you have like a reverse story. What's that? Yeah. Like? So the other story was like you know we like I said we had to pick our spots, and there were a lot of things you try to say no to and try to keep true to yourselves. And there was this other show that uh, you know when I when I would be off the road and on the weekend there was a show called Catwalk, which was uh-huh. I don't know if you remember, but it was like this uh-huh. show made in Canada about like you know, somebody's idea of what it must be like to be in a band. And it was like, you know, a loft in, a, in, a, in some alleyway and like, all, you know, all this soap opera drama about like men and women in the band. And uh, I, don't, I don't really remember much beyond that, but my wife and I would goof on that show and we would watch it to, you know, not to hate watch it, but to goof on it. It was so silly. Uh, and then we were now, by this point, we were on um, We Are, we were licensed to uh, Electra Atlantic Records here in the States. And this is probably around our Sleepy Eyed record. They said, you know, our manager was like, hey, they really want you to be on this show, Catwalk. And I said, oh, I, I, have you ever seen that? It's just so silly. No, thank you. You know, uh-huh. they're like, oh, it kept coming back up. Uh, hey, listen, they really want you. MTV's carrying it, you know, cause yeah. cause that's the thing. So it went from being syndicated to being on MTV. And, it was empty, as it was as MTV was getting into their like programming. Sure. So they're like, you know, MTV would really it, it would really probably help you if with MTV if you will do the show. And I started to become stubborn about it, and I was like, you know, how many times do I have to say no to this? It's just a goof, a goofy show. And I think Chris and Tom were they didn't really know the show. They were more about like, you know, I, whatever we we can do it. And it was it became more about me being a jerk about it. And I said, I don't really want to feel like a jerk. So, you know, here I am on tour and my phone rings in this motel room. If I recall, I'm in Indianapolis and it's, you know, I get woken up and I'm, I'm like, hello. And it's like, Bill, is this Bill? And I said, yeah, I guess, Bill, this is Danny Goldberg. He was the president <laughs> of Atlantic <laughs> Records and he was, right. you know, he was Nirvana, Nirvana's manager. And he's like, Bill, listen. I know you're reluctant to do the show Catwalk, but would you do the show Catwalk for me? I would really, it would really help us. And I said, well, he goes, well, listen, I know you're trying to get videos played on MTV, and do you think it's going to hurt 
And I said, no, but it, have you seen the show, Danny? And he says, yeah. listen, Bill, I know Catwalk is not Shakespeare. <laughs> 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 and he says, uh, now, are, you know, are MTV going to break your legs if you don't do it? No, they're right. not going to break your legs. But, you know, it would really help if you did Catwalk. So okay. I was like, you know what? Danny went out of his way to call me. And yeah. this is just some stupid thing that nobody's going to see. Right. Just suck it up and do it you know so we went and they were really great people and it was a really fun thing we did it while we were up in canada and all the people on the show again not prima donnas they all the actors came out to see us in toronto i think we were uh and it was a really rewarding experience well cut to like i don't know three months later and we're on tour and tom mcginnis our our drummer is really sick at this point and we had a like cancel a show or do a couple of shows without him so we were in san francisco and chris and i put up a sign like you know rather than cancel the show we're going to do it as a duo if you want your money back you know you will you know the show the club will give you your money back but nobody took as far as we know everybody came in it was a full room chris and i just sort of improved our way through a duo show uh Uh, and it was a little bit of a question and answer thing and this guy is holding up i swear to god holding up like a homemade cardboard sign and his he kept yelling bill bill and his sign said (laughs) catwalk comma why question mark (laughs) i go i see your sign and uh if you really have a question we can talk about it later but yeah uh what's the problem you know (laughs) yeah where was that show that was at slim's in san francisco that is so funny so the (laughs) the listener tom neuerberg who asked me to have you on the show i went to him and said what do you is there anything in particular you want me to ask him and he says, uh, he said, told me to ask you about an infamous gig of theirs in San Francisco. Tom took ill and the show at the show and Chris and Bill went on by themselves as a twosome. And so this yeah. is, the, that's the show you're talking about. Yeah. That's and, so may, funny. May, and maybe, maybe it was Tom Nurberg who actually held up the sign. That I don't might know. be, it might be. <laughs> oh, how funny. I hadn't yeah. even asked and that came up naturally. That's so yeah. great. Yeah. Okay. I was not, I was not in a good mood because. We didn't really know what was wrong with Tom. It was like sure. he, it was the only it was the only time where he had where he had missed two shows where we had to cancel almost cancel shows, and we felt the responsibility. And in fact, we were t- touring with this band, Matter Rose, and right. their drummer got up with us and played a little bit, and you know we kind of fooled around. It, it, it's like you know the spirit of the show must go on, but yeah. it was also like I didn't really know what was going on with Tom, so I was a little concerned. And here's this wise ass with this sign. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I'm going to ask him as soon as we're done if that was him. That's so yeah. funny. No, it wouldn't be um, him. Tom's yeah. too nice. Well, uh, maybe. Uh, so <laughs> Slim, that, Slims. That's a great venue. I used to live in the Bay Area. I saw Solomon Burke there um, once about 15 years ago. Such a oh, great man. show. Oh, yeah. He's great. I, I, I didn't see Solomon t- until he opened up for Van Morrison mm. uh, probably like 15 years ago or so. But it was yeah. he was fantastic. Yeah, that's about when I saw him too. He comes out on the throne. And, exactly. You know, and he's in his full uh, – he's kind of making a comeback by that point. Unfortunately, yeah. he died a few years later. But yeah, yeah great venue. Yeah, that was um, around the time he did the Joe Henry record. Yes, that's exactly it. That's what he was promoting. Hey gang, just wanted to break in here for a little bit of business. Um, first of all, you may have, I meant to say this earlier. So this conversation with Bill did not bring up a lot of natural cues where we normally like to insert songs that get talked about, you know? 
And um, but because I didn't want it to be just us talking without some examples of his music. So anytime he may, maybe mentioned an album or something like that, we would insert a song that represented the album. So hopefully you come away with a better understanding than you would have otherwise of what the you know whole Buffalo Tom uh, canon sounds like. That's the reason for that. If they seem a little kind of squeezed in, it was either that or nothing, and I wanted you to hear their stuff. Also, I wanted to say some things about last week's guest. I, As I've mentioned many times, as you know, I love 70s R&B and funk, and uh, I really appreciate a couple of you who reached out to me to kind of give me encouragement on getting more guests along those lines, like Greg Chittister and Jason Simons, but the numbers tell me that you guys are a lot less interested in R&B related guests. So um, I'm going to keep doing what I want to do, basically. Um, I do factor in your feedback, and it's good to know that um, maybe that's not as urgent a request uh, as I would like, but I take a lot of pride in kind of curating this podcast to be a reflection of not just the kind of music I like, but touches on all different kinds of genres. Uh, We try to hit on everything. I I always tell people the sweet spot is 1975 to 1995, but that doesn't have to be that. And frankly, I've always wondered if we would be more successful if I stuck just to 80s music or just to new wave and alternative or something like that. But that's not, I mean, that might be my favorite, but that's not what my iTunes library looks like. And so I'm trying to kind of reflect what everybody's into. You know, maybe if you're not into this kind of music, maybe you'll like this, or maybe maybe you'll be reminded that there's kind of a big, beautiful world of music out there, and all of it's good and interesting. So anyway, we're going to keep going, just doing what feels right, and uh, I always just try to seek out people who I think might have interesting stories, and in some cases I'm right, in some cases I'm wrong, but uh, anyway, I appreciate all the feedback. I think because of this, we didn't get as many shares as normally we do, but it was the, the age-old uh, you know, Hall of Famers that I can always count on to share our episodes. Jay Sabluski, Carrie Carlson, Hubrigel, Gregory Ray, I see Greg, Jason Simons, Sonny Pooney, and Grown Up uh, Rock Podcast. Thanks to everybody that keeps the word out there. And um, hopefully there's more of you, but I really appreciate everything you're doing. Now, we've had a ton of requests this week, so I wanted to touch on a lot of them. Um, First of all, uh, Eric, a new listener whose na- last name I did not get, but he sent me a very nice email, requested the refreshments, which I thought was a really interesting idea. I've thought of those guys too, but hadn't committed it to you know making it a priority or anything. I'll see if I can find the refreshments. Another guy, David Cedillo, Cedillo, hopefully I'm saying your name right, Dave. He recommended Ray Hildebrand, which is a name I didn't recognize, except that Ray wrote the hit, the early 60s hit, Hey Paula. And Dave's idea is that Ray was writing songs at the very tail end of kind of doo-wop before rock really started to take over, and how he transitioned from one kind of uh, generation to the next. That could be an interesting story. I'll have to think about Ray Hildebrand. I like that idea. And then Gordon Hamill, I love Gordon. He came in basically with a plus one for The Descendants. I had mentioned them recently. He gave me a lot more background info that I was not aware of about people in that band. Some of them are Mormon or were Mormon. As you know, that ties back to me and Yan, so that could be really interesting fodder to talk about. So I'm going to have to get serious about The Descendants. Thanks, Gordon, for reminding me about that one. 
And then I heard from a new listener, Martin McGarry in Ireland, came back with a lot of feedback. I love those kinds of emails. And then he had a big list of people to, that he's recommending, most of which I've never even heard of. So let me run down this. Adiva, I don't know who that is. Um, Brenda Russell, uh, Piano in the Dark fame. I thought about Brenda when we had Joe Esposito on two years ago or something because he wrote that song. And uh, I just, I kind of dropped the ball. I, Brenda's a good idea. I should get back into it. Candyland. Now, I think there's more than one band out there named Candyland. So I've had one band named Candyland in mind for a while. In the early 90s, I lived in the UK, and one night I saw Shakespeare's sister in concert, and the opening act was a group called Candyland. And I really liked them, and I have one of their CDs, and I think it's the only CD they ever put out. And I'm not saying this derogatory in any way, but it's I think they are predominantly gay or catered to a gay audience. The album is called Suck It and See. There's a banana on the cover. It's meant to be kind of an inside joke, as you can imagine. And so I don't know if what he's talking about is the same band that I'm aware of and have meant to get in touch with as well. Uh, If they are, that would be great. Anyway, I need to seek out this band called Candyland that I saw in concert in like 1991. Uh, Let's see. Course of Empire. Never heard of them. David Joseph. Never heard of them. And Alan Wilder, great idea. He was with Depeche Mode. Uh, The late, great Brian Jensen had requested uh, Alan about a year ago. And I've tried Alan a couple of times because I'm sure there's an interesting story there. Plus, how great would it be to have someone for Depeche Mode on here? But I've never heard back. So I don't know if maybe he's one of those people that doesn't do a lot of interviews because... Maybe he's put in a position where he has to sort of talk trash about Depeche Mode, which is not what I'm necessarily going for here. But um, anyway, I will try Alan again. I think that's a great idea. Done Lying Down. Never heard of them. Eight Story Window. Don't know them. Front 242. They're one of those bands I've always known, and I don't know that much about them. I mean, I, I know they're a very popular dance outfit from the late 80s, early 90s. Very influential. I think of them in terms of, like, the shaman. Remember the shaman? Um, but I don't have, I don't think I have any Front 242 music. So that would take some research, but I'm open to it. Heaven 17, yes, I've brought them up before. They get asked about a lot. It's really dumb of me to have not sought them out because I love them, and I just haven't done it yet. Hue and Cry, good idea. Jackie Graham, don't know who that is. Jody Watley of Shalimar, I would love to talk to Jody. I don't know how much press she does. And that's been my deterrent from reaching out to her up till now. But maybe I, I could be completely wrong. So I'll see what I can do about Jody because I would love to have her on here as well. I've thought about her as well. Joyce Sims, don't know who that is. Justin Warfield, don't know. Con Can, that's another one that I sort of put up there with the Shaman, Front 242. I would love to talk to them. I, I loved some of their stuff back in the late 80s. Love and Money, I remember them. I haven't thought about them in a long time. Mai Tai, don't know who that is. And then Mr. Mister, we always hear Mr. Mister. So update on that. I had tried many, many times. I sent a message to their Facebook page probably four or five months ago, and whoever mans that page said that they would send my stuff, my information to their manager, uh, but couldn't pro- promise anything, and I never heard back. So I'll have to try again. We'll see what happens. Now, another listener, Ron uh, Brian Morris, I'm sorry, requested Ron Sexsmith, and uh, he made a very good point, which I've heard from a lot of other people. 
Ron is an excellent singer-songwriter and very much in the same vein as Neil Finn, who is one of my all-time favorites. And yet, I have some Ron Sexsmith music, and I like it, but it's never completely hooked me to the level that Neil has. And um, which is dumb because I like a lot of people just like Ron, but I have never quite given Ron a fair shake. So um, I think I'm going to do a deep dive into Ron Sexsmith. Brian thinks we can get him on the show. That would be a lot of fun. I would love to talk to Ron whether I know every inch of his music or not. So I'm going to look into that one. And then one more we have here, Andy Shaw. I love Andy. He makes a lot of great comments on the Facebook post. He, uh, he sent me a list as well, and these are some good ones. First of all, Jane Child. Do you guys remember her? Very interesting look, spiky hair, braids, chain from her nose to her ear. Um, I have tried to find her many times and come up empty. I think she's one of those people who sort of disappeared on purpose. In fact, her husband, I believe, does... I think he works for CBS or something in their music department, and I think he does the music for like The Price is Right and um, Let's Make a Deal or something like that. Anyway, I tried to find him once and get to her through him, but I never heard from him either. So she would be great. I would love to talk to her, but I don't know how to find her. Uh, the Jets. I actually reached out to the Jets probably two years ago and they turned me down and said so they were burnt out from doing that kind of interview. But, you know, we've had a lot of great guests in two years. So maybe, and I was just listening to them in the car last week. I thought, I need to try the Jets again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them higher up on my to-do list. Robbie Dupree. I love Robbie. Steal Away is one of my all-time favorite songs. In fact, it is tied for number one all-time favorite Yacht Rock song of mine. And the band that it's tied with will be up in two weeks, I believe. So I love Robbie. There is no good reason why I have not tried to track down Robbie yet. I just haven't done it. I will. Uh, the brand new heavies. Great idea. Never thought of them, although I love them. Uh, I will try to do that. And then Jennifer Trinan. Um, so her name has come up before. I am fully aware that she wrote, I think, a very, uh, I haven't read it, but I've heard it's a very good book about her life as sort of an indie artist and how, what the reality of that is. And um, I've meant to get her on here, and I just haven't done it, mainly because I'm not that familiar with her music, and it just feels like I would take a lot of research. I'd have to go back and listen to all the music, go back and read the book, all of which I'm open to doing, especially since I'm always trying to get more women on here. I just haven't done it yet. And uh, so it just has never risen to the top of my priority list. But it's a great idea. I want to read. We only got one new uh, iTunes review this week. It's from Wolf Taco. That is a great name. Five stars, very good. John, being an Anglophile, will doubtless recognize this phrase. Keep off the moors, stick to the roads. I love it. Our kid is best. I love that he calls us our kid. I'll be your kid. I love that. Our kid is best when he's in his depth. I love the questions and positive affirmations, but feel the show is best when the host has a personal connection to the music and or guests. I agree. At the same time, it's okay to keep the cards close to the vest and let the musicians love you for not going to the obvious places. No matter what this is, no matter what, this is a bright spot in my week. That is great. Thank you, Wolf Taco. I don't think I know who you are, but I appreciate those kind words. And since that's it, as far as iTunes reviews, guys, we could use more reviews. And as you can tell, I'll read them whether they're good or bad. Uh, in fact, the bad ones, I think you guys love it when I read those. So don't just give me a bunch of bad ones because you like when I read them. But be honest, I'll take it. Anyway, a couple of Facebook reviews. Carrie Byers, I'm a new listener and now binge listening to catch up. Just a great podcast. 
for music fans like me, five stars. Thank you, Carrie, very much. And then Jeff Baker, I love Jeff. He gave us five stars. I'm a data entry operator and nothing makes the time pass by faster at work than John's interviews. He picks the most interesting musicians to discuss things with and has even introduced me to some music that I never heard before. That is what this is all about. I have never heard a bad heard a bad episode of The Hustle. That means a lot as well. Even the interviews of artists I never heard of keep me intrigued. I love that. As, as Jan mentioned in the Q&A episode, I am just convinced that like half the episodes we put out are just going to fail. I don't think I do a very good job or they're not interesting enough or it's just not the definitive, you know, snapshot of this person's career and every time Yan fixes it and makes it sound great and I've been worrying for no good reason. It happens every single week just about. Uh, anyway, last but not least, the shirts. I think I've mentioned this before. We've included some a hoodie and sweatshirts. They're more money, but if you want one, it's up to you. And then all the sizes are available now that weren't there before. So we've got it all in there. Just go into the uh, go to Amazon, type in Hustle Podcast Merch, and you'll see all of it. Anyway, thanks everybody. Let's get back to Bill. I want to talk about the writing. I um, first of all, how did AllMusic.com happen? Because I've had uh, I've talked to Stephen Thomas Earlwine on here, and um, I, I assume you know who that is. He's probably yeah, yeah. the most bu- the busiest critic on there. Yeah, and um, I find him fascinating because I read his stuff almost every day. And he wondered something. He I went to him too and asked him if there was anything he thought I should bring up. And he qu- had the question, which I had as well: if writing for all music sort of primed the pump or gave you sort of the confidence to think that you could expand to start writing then about the stones. <laughs> I like how it's phrased. Gave me the confidence. You think you think you could start writing all of a sudden. Yeah. It's like Those the, were my like words. The, it's like the rock critics. You think our you think our job is so easy, don't <laughs> no. you? No. Uh, Those are my way, words, not his. Sa- so same pull. way, same way with musicians. Oh, you think right. it's so easy? You should come up here and try. Right. Uh, no, I'm just joking. Um, right. Yeah. No. Um, you know, back then, I don't think Tom was uh, part of it, or his uncle. I think I think his uncle was one of the founders of it. He was. Yeah. So the guy I was dealing with, with was um, Chris Woodstock, and uh-huh. I wanted to. I just I wanted to do some more things in music where you know that I could do from home because I was home with my uh, then infant and up to two year old daughter before she was in daycare or even while she was at daycare. I was like sort of the, the stay at home dad for a, a while there. So in the late nineties, early two thousands, I, um, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote a few people and said, Hey, do you have any, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to write about, and, and, and they were just starting this new project where they were doing a songs review project because they, they kind of saw the future of like, yeah. MTV, you know, MP3 downloads or something. Right. So um, they they saw this need for um, individual song synopses, basically. And I was writing, you know, it was so it was such short money, and they, you know, all these other people were writing like one paragraph synopses, whereas I was writing like four pages of like, mm. you know, you get you right. get a sense from just talking to me that I'm long winded and 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 I'm I'm my worst editor. So yeah, but that led to more freelance writing, and it was around a one. Um, 
Oh, well, no, it was actually it was a few years later than that when this um, 33 and a third started the series. And um, Joe Pernice, who was a, f- a friend of mine from college. Uh, I love had, the Pernice brothers. Nice. I didn't know you guys knew each other. Yeah, yeah. Jay, I mean, um, Joe and I knew each other before he really was even in a band. Oh. So, I mean, Scud Mountain Boys sort of started while he was in grad school, I think. Right. So, okay. Did when we Joe were on- write the, was it the Mita's Murder, 33 and a third? Exactly, yeah. Okay, yeah. And so I... Um, I, I wrote to him and, and his manager, who was also had, had once managed us, uh, who now works for the mayor of Boston, um, uh, Joyce Linehan. And I said, "Hey, who, you mind putting me in contact with whoever does this kind of thing and uh, the editor?" And so she did. And I just wrote David Barker, who was the editor of the series at the time, and that led to that. And then I, I you know, I, I from there, I, I, I was sort of back into music itself. So I wasn't really writing much. Uh, but then I got a, 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 an email out of nowhere from somebody who, an agent who pitched me the idea for doing a second Stones book, and that's how that one ended up happening. Okay, okay, you gotta. Okay, we gotta talk. We're gonna argue a little bit here for a minute. Sure. What What is the deal with Exile on Main Street? Why? I'm starting to and this and Tom Stephen Thomas Earl Wine. His name's actually Tom. Yeah. Tom and I kind of argued this a little bit um, when I had him on here. It feels to me like there is such a groupthink mentality within music critics criticism that all the music critics, especially in this generation, have to, and you no offense, you already mentioned them, they have to label Husker Du, Replacements, Exile on Main Street. These are all the like the benchmarks of, you know, if you don't like these things or you're not into these things, then you're not truly appreciating what real rock and roll music is. Greg Cott and Jim DeRogatis talk that way. And don't get me wrong. I, I like Exile on Main Street. I don't think it's the greatest album of all time, but I like it. And I'm a big Husker Du and Replacements fan. But why is no one out there saying anything different? Why did everyone collectively decide we're going to love these things and we're never going to shut up about it? You know what I mean? I hate no, to sound uh, negative. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, I, I want to kind of get into it with you a little bit. No, no. I, I, I mean, there's a lot to a lot to discuss there. I, I'm not going to say unpack because I hate when people say unpack stuff. <laughs> but no, I mean, <laughs> good to I know. Mean, I won't say. It. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of critical darling things that I I have never gotten, or it took me a while to get. And yeah. one of them is, for example, for me, is Joni Mitchell, who mm. to me for a while just sounded like I just couldn't I couldn't deal with it it just sounded it was just not my thing I I, I can't say I was close-minded about it but I certainly wasn't open-minded about it but I you know I sort of like gave it a listen and it wasn't my thing Richard Thompson for a while was sort of that way for me and then at some point it just it's just seeing it enough in 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 people whose tastes I really respected not necessarily critics more importantly um friends and and fellow musicians um, made me keep going back and trying to keep an open mind, and eventually I found my way in. For for Joni Mitchell, for example, it was it was Prince passing away. I mean, mm-hmm. it made me realize that I actually always sort of did like a lot of Joni Mitchell, but you know, I, I had only maybe given Blue like maybe four or five spins before really just not really doing much with it. But it was hearing his version of A Case of You, which made me go back to that record, and I'm like. How did I? It's like when you finally have Brussels sprouts the right way, and you go, "How did I ever not like Brussels sprouts?" You know, right? Um, not to compare Joni to Brussels sprouts, but no, I'm with you. so 
but with these other things, I don't. I can't help you. Uh, I mean, I wrote a whole book. That's the best I can do with Exile <laughs> on Main Street. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's like it's like you either like it or you don't. I can sit here and write about why I like it, and that's what right. I did. And I wrote a whole, you know, yeah. how, how many how many words. Right. But and then I wrote a second book, which has a lot of Exile in it, and it was a record that, unlike Joni, I didn't need. Uh, I didn't need to keep going back with. I had heard about this you know it wasn't my first stones record like i said i got out of our heads first and i got all these other ones first and i wrote about how i obtained uh exile on history it went, went to my brother by accident mm. from santa had mixed it up and i had a trade i had to trade all these led zeppelin records to paul to get <laughs> to get to get exile so i mean you got to read the book nice. but um it, it it explains why i mean it just hit me immediately it was Huh. It was dense. It was bluesy. It was all those things that can be off-putting. It was murky. It was freaky. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of stuff that appealed to me all the time, like early yeah. on. Like I loved the blues stuff and the soul stuff and the gospel stuff. All of those songs that are probably have never been played or some of their least played songs are the songs that mean the most to me of the Stones. It's like I always loved gospel. I loved Stevie Wonder. I loved Aretha. Yeah, I loved – so there was something about it, and it was so different than these other Stones records. And frankly, the songs that I loved off of Out of Our Heads, for example, weren't necessarily Satisfaction. It was Cry to Me, the Solomon Burke mm-hmm. song. It was mm-hmm. you know, on, on, on Sticky Fingers. It was I Got the Blues or yeah. – or Moonlight Mile. It was these weird songs, you know? And that's what uh, Exile was to me. It was this double album with this cool artwork to explore and get lost in for years. And I can put that record on today and still get the same shivers and still want to sing at the top of my lungs. And it's the record that I've played the most in my life. Again, let me clarify. I do like that record a lot. I just am, I'm fatigued by everyone telling me how great it is and how much I'm supposed to like it. And so was was your love of this album, do you feel like you came by this album organically on your own? Or was it, and I think you mentioned you'd had it for a while, it, was, it wasn't a music critic who told you to like this album and you sort of wanted to do what the cool kids wanted you to do? No, no, because I was really young when I got this record. Like okay. I said, I had okay. asked Santa Claus for this record. Yeah, so, okay. I mean, That's I, I, true. Know, I, I knew it was my parents, but okay. I mean, we were, I was sharing a room with my little brother and we were little kids when I got this record. I mean, okay. I, was, I, I, was probably, I was probably playing guitar, so I was probably 13, not, not, a, okay. not a little kid. But okay. no, I, I wasn't really, I mean, I picked up, cream magazine it was more about like you know what it was with exile probably it was probably me having these stones books and they weren't like there weren't many great stones books by that point but they were like you know those kind of books that you'd get with all the pictures and stuff and one of them had at least one of them had all these cool pictures uh of nelcott the the mansion that keith Mm -hmm. had rented and that whole mythology of like you know, I'd probably maybe even started to play music with other people by that point. So um, this whole mythology of being in a freaking big mansion as rich rock stars, at least I thought they were rich. They right. were, t- turns out they were, they were on the verge of bankruptcy, right. which is why the reason they were in France to begin with. And, yeah. But to read about these guys making this record in the basement of this mansion on the south of, in the south of France and 
to be eating together and making music in the middle of the night and these guys with these bottles of whiskey and beer and cigarettes and it was just enticing i and i and i and that probably led me to that record but i i, I had already known tumbling dice and mm-hmm. um and probably had heard a little bit of that record, but I wanted to. I mean, I was a Stones completist by that point. Okay. I wanted, okay. I wanted, I wanted every record. Yeah. So okay. and it didn't, and it really did. It really didn't take me. It's not like I had to keep going back to that record. It's not like I listened to it and go, I don't get it. I, I yeah. keep. I got it immediately, and I wanted to keep getting it over and over again. Now, yeah. I, no, to your larger point about rock critics telling you what you should and shouldn't like. I mean, that's that. You know, I, I've never really had that issue. I mean, I. Okay. I. I there are critics I trust and, uh-huh. and critics who tell you, I don't, I don't really trust critics who are, you know, like for, for example, Chris Gow, I, I never really put much import on him. I, the stuff I really, I think he's, I think he's a great writer. I think he's turned me on to some good uh-huh. things, but it's not his, his style of like grading things and disparaging things yeah. is far less interesting to me than the people that just, write about why you should mm. love something or why they love something. It's not about why you should. It's just like, look, like Lester Bangs. I, like Lester Bangs is trying to put into words why, you know, Astral Weeks was the import, such an important record and what, why it's yeah. the sounds of an artist expressing himself in such a compelling way that it just spoke to Lester in such a, a way that, you know, you, other rock critics or other critics can say, well, that's not criticism, that's – that's just masturbation, you know, yeah. right? You know, whatever it is. I, right. I, 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 I'm, I don't care. It's just a guy that's putting his passion down as best right. he can on, on the page. And you could either go buy the record or not. It doesn't yeah. matter to me. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. I just, um, it's funny you mentioned Chris Gow because while you were talking, I was thinking, I wish someone would just go to bat for like undercover or dirty work or something like that. And then I remembered Chris Gow actually really likes dirty work. He was one of the only people who kind of defends dirty work. Are you sure it was dirty work? And I mean, you may be right. I, I, and you probably are almost, right. But I'm, I, I, I'm almost because positive. I, because a lot of a lot of critics actually, well, not a lot, but a few critics were the naysayers about Undercover. Because, uh, and I have a lot of Stones fans who friends who love Undercover, and I don't yeah. really. I I, I think it's right. okay. I think yeah. it's great grading on a curve, but uh, but I'll I'll go to the mat for some you know stuff like. Uh, uh, Goat's Head and Black and Blue and right. even even Emotional Rescue I think has got some okay. great Emotional great stuff. Rescue, okay. Because yeah. the the other ones I felt like, well, those are some of the easy ones to defend. I want to hear someone go to bat for the harder ones, like oh yeah, you know what I mean. Even um, uh, Steel Wheels, which was I mean, it sounds lame, but that's when I I was sixteen or something when that came out. Well, that's and got so some that great was, stuff. Yeah. I love that album, and I think Mixed Emotions is like a perfect single. And so I have a lot of affection for that, probably because it was one of the first that I you know around too. It really you know? is. It really is when you get on the train, and and uh, I mean the first record of theirs that I bought uh, contemporaneously was Some Girls. You know, that's mm-hmm. when I finally was caught up and was buying records on my own as they came out. Same with like In Through the Outdoor for the for yeah. Led Zeppelin, and but it's funny. I mean, you know, you get into Stones world like I am, and you get all these different. Um, you know, like, like I divide my rocks off book into three sections. Um, one is the Brian Jones years one is the Mick Taylor years and one is the Ron Wood years. And it's like, uh-huh. it's three parts. And there are people that completely got off the bus. Like my, my friend, Peter Gammons, who's, you know, the baseball writer, yes, he I really didn't, pick, he didn't really pick up any records after Brian Jones, I think, uh, until maybe later. 
Um, and then, you know, and, and people of his generation that really grew up with that first, you know, that were like the Stones guys age, basically, yeah. um, you know, they kind of, when they didn't really kind of get into that sort of post Yaya stuff where they started to get into other stuff, you know, yeah. uh, or lost them at psychedelia or whatever. And then I have friends like Chris Coburn who will really, really go to the mat for satanic majesty's request. And there's a bit of contrarianism to it, certainly. Sure, of course. But then there are people that said, you know, it all ended with Exile. There hasn't been a good record since. And then there are yeah. people that say, well, no, that's not true. You know, like people, yeah. people my age really, really enjoy Goat's Head and, and, and Black and Blue. Uh, and then there are people that, say, that draw the line at some girls, you know, saying, like, well, Tattoo You, maybe, but it's right. Emotional Rescue was silly and. Uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, yeah. it's everybody's got their different opinions, and it really is where you got on the on the on the train. I think. Yeah, I've gotten to this point where you know we're it's Oscar season, and every year at the, around this time, the critics all tell you what the best movies are, and some of them I've seen, and I don't, I didn't like them, and I don't understand why. Not just one particular critic, but suddenly everyone is saying this uh, this movie is the best, and this person's going to win an Oscar, and. I, I start to sit back and I think, well, who's everyone and who decided this? And everyone really feels that way. Why is there this group think? I, I keep going back to this group think mentality. I just feel like I feel like there's not enough kind of unique autonomous thinkers out there when it comes to the arts anyway, in this current climate. And I, I long for somebody to be unique and different in their likes and their dislikes and the things that they want to kind of defend. And um, to me, Exile on Main Street, as much as I like that album, is like the quintessential critic uh, darling. And it, it, I just thought, can we not be a little more... I'm not trying... This sounds like I'm disparaging. I'm not. I'm trying to kind of talk music with someone who's as passionate about it as I am. Well, um, I, think, I think that's what the 33 and a third series is good for. I mean, my true. book... You put my book aside because it really is one of the more obvious ones in, in your in your characterization here. But I mean, there's been so many other uh, there are so many other li- uh, records on there that, well, I mean, you know, there are, there are glaring examples of the kind of thing you're talking about the critics darling critical darling records like OK Computer or whatever mm-hmm. else. But I mean, usually, usually, what you're calling groupthink is because <laughs> enough people who really yeah, do it's deep- probably. Yeah. Enough people who do really deep listens love those records. I mean, unless somebody's being disingenuous and just you know saying they love those records because they're told they're supposed to. I mean, that that might be just more of a personal issue than anything else. Right. But right. Okay. I, I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to judge each whatever recommendation essay on its own merits. I you know I think there's lazy music journalism for no doubt. I think that's ninety percent yeah. probably. Maybe that's sure. maybe that's not quite. Maybe that's an exaggeration. But you know, I, I the 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 people it's. It's the people that nowadays music criticism doesn't matter as much because you're not going to take a chance on going to drop ten dollars on a record you haven't heard before just because some somebody reviewed it. Yeah. And there were times where that's how I grew up buying records in a lot of ways, you know, like it's on this label or this person yeah. recommended it and I and they haven't steered me wrong yet. Now you can go sample the song while somebody's writing about it in Pitchfork and you can tell whether I mean to me to me, criticism is I, I, I never I never put any stock in negative criticism. It's all mm. about I want somebody to make the case of why they really love something, and then okay. I'll that's I'll fair. go listen to it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, well, thanks for hearing me out. I hope that didn't bother you or anything. I just <laughs> oh, no, no, uh, I, love I wanted this kind to kind of, of get into. Okay, me too, me too. So I I wanted to kind of get into it with somebody that I thought I could you know 
go toe to toe with. So thank you for doing that. My well, pleasure. Look, um, I I don't know. I mean, there were. I think we've covered pretty much everything. I mean, Tom Neuerberg, as I mentioned, he wanted me to mention, ask you about Michael Malley and Peter Gammons. You just mentioned Peter Gammons. It must be crazy to have these. How did you even become friends with Peter Gammons, for crying out loud? Well, Peter's a Bostonian, um, so that's there's a case of actually a, uh, of a Bostonian, um, sure. uh, you know, sort of the local thing being part of it. And during his you know, he, he rode to heights, obviously, with his syndicated column, but then was um, then became this big ESPN guy. And while he was an, an analyst there, he he wanted to he's an extremely generous and one of the one of the biggest hearted guys you'll ever meet. And he's he had always been a music fan. He had always peppered his columns with uh, subheadings that were basically song lyrics or titles and he had always had this really cool taste, you know. He's like at the Bonnie Raid or Little Feet or certain nice. punk rock bands, and The Clash was a big band for him. Yeah. So when it came time for him to set up his own benefit, he always used the line, "Well, I don't golf, so I wasn't going to have a golf tournament. So here's what I love: I love having music. So how about a, I love music? So how about having a music benefit?" Uh-huh. So he and uh, this other beat writer in town, Jeff Horgan along with a, a music uh, manager, uh, Mike Creamer, decided to have this thing called Hot Stove Cool Music. So it was, you know, it was going to be during the winter. There, and then I got involved on the, on the second year of that, basically. Okay. And we helped take it to sort of a new level, all, all for charity. You know, then, then it was that predated Theo Epstein's presence in town. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was another guy who grew up with Buffalo Tom, basically, and Pearl mm-hmm. Jam and and so he, we looped him in very soon uh, when he was VP or uh, assistant manager, and then he became the manager, uh, general manager, of course. So there was that, and I brought Mike O'Malley into that because uh, I, I had gotten to be friends with Mike O'Malley just from being a fan of Buffalo Tom. Uh, he um, he grew up in uh, Nashua, New Hampshire, not far from Boston. And um, he, when the time came for him to have his own show, he asked us to do the theme song. And that's the first time we really got to meet him. He's a, he's a really one of my closest friends. I, there's nobody who I have gotten to be an in, as intense a friend with in a relatively short period of time, late in life. You know, he like wow. those sort of late in life friendships are kind of valuable. You know, you just sure. think you're, you, you think you've made all your friends and you're just going to see yeah. your buddies, you know, but I, I've, I've had a few of these kinds of friends, uh, that's great. Uh, but Mike is, if not my dearest friend, one of my dearest friends. In fact, That's I just great. sent him a really nice Christmas present to, today. Oh. <laughs> so, so I miss the guy, but he's That's uh, great. Yeah, he was okay. really happy to be part of this benefit as well. Good. You know what? I, I'm having a memory now. Do you do you know the uh, Boston music writer Jim Sullivan? Yeah, yeah, very well. I so he he puts out a weekly podcast, Boston Rock Talk. I think it's really just recorded interviews he does to, for his articles or something. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty low level, but I'll listen to it occasionally. And Mike, Ma- Michael Malley was the guest at one point. I don't know how long ago. And they were talking, I think, about this benefit. Yeah. So how, how interesting. Yeah, I'm piecing together these things now. Yeah, well, Jim is a huge uh, Red Sox fan as well. And he's, yeah. he's, he's been a season ticket holder since, since he's a, a kid, really. Wow. Okay. Okay. What about, isn't George Will a Red Sox guy too? 
I don't think so. Uh, George he wrote a not, book about him, I thought, didn't he? Maybe did I have he? this wrong. I mean, he's definitely written books about baseball. I don't know that he's a, a Red Sox guy per se. Okay. I'm sure he appreciates the Sox, but I, I don't sure. know who his, who his okay. team would be. I, I, don't, I don't know where he grew up. He seems yeah. more of a Midwest guy. Right. I could have sworn he wrote a book about the Sox maybe 10, 20 years ago. And so I've always had it in my mind that he was a fan of theirs, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway. Okay. Well, uh, thanks a lot for talking to me, Bill. You oh, know, thank it, you, John. I, I, I don't know. I, I hope this comes off as a, as a, as a uh, compliment because it, it should. What I've been thinking about you a lot lately and listening to all your old stuff, especially your solo albums, which we didn't even really get into, but those are great as well. You know who you remind me of is John Doe of oh, the well. band X. And I, hope I love that that, John. Yeah, and I hope that that's a good thing because I was thinking about, you know, here's two guys that are the front men for very beloved yet sort of cult bands that matter deeply to certain people um, and have sort of gone on their path. You know, they go in and out of these bands. They put out their solo material, and that's also really good too. And the fans, their fans wish that they were, you know, bigger and more popular and always out there and household names, and yet they remain these very beloved cult figures, but the quality never dips. And that's kind of what I was thinking about you. You remind me a lot of John Doe. And so well, I, that's, that's a good really, thing in my mind. It's a good thing in my mind, too, because, I mean, it's good. another band that um, that the three of us, uh, and certainly Chris and I, uh, really shared a love for early on when we started the band. And, and one of the great things is Chris has gotten to work with him uh, as a, as a, Chris, Chris has owned a booking agency mm. Uh, and they, one of their one of their acts is John Doe, so uh, mm. he's gotten to know him pretty well over the years. Uh, but right. I really appreciate it. he's 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 just a real. I, I've met John briefly, uh, and he's such a gracious guy, and he's one of those guys that everybody speaks extremely well of. Oh, so good. Uh, I, okay. I take it as a, a, a supreme a supreme good. compliment. Good. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, he does his acting, and you do your writing, and I just thought there's a lot of parallels here. I, yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you: you mentioned Chris. Is that his day job having this? Booking agency? Yeah, so um, Chris never gave up his day job because he loved it so, and he wow. he, he started right out of college with it. Um, he was already sort of booking shows in college to some extent, working as an intern and things, and then he, he joined this company as an agent, and then um, he brought on another guy, uh, Mike Leahy, who actually used to play with the Blake Babies and some other guys, uh, and and so Mike and and Mike and and Chris are are basically the partners. They took over the the agency. It's called Concerted Efforts, hmm. and um, the founder is still, I think, uh, uh, retired, but probably like a silent partner. But it's mainly Chris and Mike. Okay, cool. And what does Tom do? What's his What's his job? Uh, well, Tom for 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 many years was the stay at home dad um, uh, during the Buffalo Tom years, and shortly thereafter, for for a couple of years after, and then he was working with a publishing company for a while. Um, I'm not, you know, sort of just doing copy work and now he's been he's actually working for <laughs> for the government believe it or oh. not uh well, yeah uh, at, okay. a, at a at basically like a, in a v, in the visa department of of the u.s government up in oh. up in up around new england somewhere new hampshire i think okay okay interesting yeah well um great thank you for talking to me bill i really appreciate this thank you john there you have it bill janovitz Hope you guys enjoyed that. And I hope if you're unfamiliar with Buffalo Tom, which would surprise me, um, go in and check out some of their stuff, especially that mid-90s peak. It's really, really good. 
And thank you, Tom Nuremberg, by the way. In fact, we wanted to close it out with Tom's favorite Buffalo Tom song, which is Porchlight, this song right here. So anyway, thanks again, Tom. Now, next week, we have our biggest guest yet next week. And I realize as I'm saying that, that getting big guests is not really the point of this podcast. We're more trying to tell the stories of the littler guys. But um, I don't mind sprinkling in some big names once in a while. And so next week's guest is a big one. He's one of my all-time favorites. He's a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. We didn't have a ton of time, but I felt like I, I got some of the really essential stuff in there. So I hope you guys will come back next week and check that one out. And uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man, Makevich, my buddy, my producer, for putting everything together. Thanks, pal. Uh, you guys know the business by now. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can um, subscribe to the podcast. Please write us a review on iTunes. You can uh, send me a message on Facebook. You can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Anyway, thanks, everybody. We will see you next Tuesday. No equal